Welcome to Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name is Nathan Moore. Soundboard airs every Saturday at 6 a.m. on WTJU 91.1 FM. And we're also podcasting as part of the Teej FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Tune in, subscribe, find out what's happening in your community and around the state. Uh, later in the show, we'll hear from Richmond-based journalist Peter Galaska, plus an interview with Emily Richardson Lorente about the university's bicentennial and a little oral history project we're doing here at WTJU. But we're going to start off the show looking at local news and politics. With us, as always, are the, the, the gentlemen from Charlottesville Tomorrow. I've got the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow, Giles Morris, as well as the news editor, Elliot Robinson, and reporter Josh Mandel. All join us in the studio. Hey, guys. Hey, Nathan. How's it going? Hi. <laughs> Hello, people of Charlottesville. <laughs> and beyond. And, and beyond. beyond. Yeah. Um, so we have a lot of things going on. Elliot, I want to start with you talking about the city council meeting this week. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about nonprofit funding in the city and how it gets doled out from city government to like 40 nonprofits. Take me through uh, the issues at hand. It's the city council is considering having some sort of priority setting commission to determine how they can better give money to these nonprofits. They currently have a process in place called the Agency Budget Review Team, but they are seeking some sort of oversight of that or more of an evaluation of that process and how those things go. But the resolution to establish this commission seemed a bit vague to some of the council members, which led to them effectively tabling this discussion to have staff come back with a better plan for how to handle this issue. So what's the issue? What what do some members of council think is broken? They think that, one, there are a lot of nonprofits that are getting funded by the city. Some of them have the opinion that there's no real measure of what those results are from those organizations. So they want more accountability, more display of results. They effectively, they, they want more transparency from those nonprofits to the city council itself. At a, at a basic level... You know, you have some of the ongoing conversations in council where there are differing priorities and approaches, um, um, particularly with respect to conversations about equity. And then in the nonprofit landscape where the city, you know, outsources many of its support social services to the nonprofit sector. And those are many of the nonprofits that are re- request this money year after year through the ABRT process. And Mayor Walker is basically like, if you're going to take our city money, you need to be more accountable and you need to be more transparent, particularly to the base people who you serve. You know, her voice and, um, was pretty resounding in that respect mm-hmm. and I think caught a lot of the nonprofit leaders off guard because they feel like they're doing something good in the community, they're helping the city uh, do things it can't do, um, and they rely on this annual allocation in their budgets. So any kind of sense of destabilization of that supply makes them have basically, you know, deep existential fears about the survival of their nonprofit, right? So I think it was, in a way, um, you know, the mayor's uh, goal to put people on notice that this is something that she and others in the community are thinking hard about and would like to see people begin thinking hard about themselves. Um, let's transition from that into a different nonprofit in town, but also part of the council meeting discussion, the Historical Society. There's been a lot of conversation over the last few years about its impact and uh, what's up now. The, uh, the R.M.L. Charlottesville Historical Society, they're 
seeking a renewal of their lease of the McIntyre building, which once was the city library, is now located behind the current central library. The city council had a list of goals that they wanted the historical society to fulfill before they considered renewing the lease, and that came from the concerns that were raised from the prior leadership of the historical society, and they had mentioned that they had set goals for the historical society once before, and none of them were met, so they gave the society an extension, a new set of goals. Since they have new leadership in place, they've knocked out nine of the ten requirements that are that were put in place. Mm-hmm. And what do we know? I mean, Coy Barefoot is the new leader of, of the, the Historical Society, longtime local journalist and sort of, you know, man about town. Uh, what is the direction he's taking it in? I think it's a little bit to be determined. It's more, at least, you know, Coy has his own following. He has a real facility as a communicator. Um, he's deeply engaged with UVA history and has been. Um, and so I think that he's trying to energize kind of his base and his interests, but also open things up to the community in various ways. The question, though, is that, I mean, you know, under the last regime with um, Stephen Meeks, I mean, there was just so much that was wrong with what was going on. So I think in general, we're still in this space where, like, you know, the organization is on probation, yeah. right? And he's trying to get them off probation, you know, there's this question about, you know, what they need to do to get back in good standing to deserve that support. And um, with anything like, uh, historic, you know, the, the historical society and its history, um, you know, with the equity conversations going on around town, um, certainly the last regime had a lot of liabilities around that. And so the question is, you know, how do you re- represent the whole community's history in such a way that, you know, public funding, public resources, and, you know, the general community's support is behind the idea of you being the steward of its steward. Right, right. Well, let's switch gears to uh, the north side of town and talk about Seminole Square, a shopping plaza that's been around since the early 1980s. Um, And there used to be a giant grocery store there. It went out of, uh, it it left the plaza, what, four or five years ago, maybe. Um, Josh Mandel's with us, uh, also from Charlottesville tomorrow, reporter over there, and wrote this week about a new proposal to uh, replace that former giant grocery store with some housing. Um, Josh, take me through the, the pitch that, uh, that came before council. Uh, this was the Charlottesville Planning Commission, and they had a preliminary conversation with representatives of the Great Eastern Management Company about this new residential project at Seminole Square. Uh, right now, it's looking like it would be 11 five-story buildings with a total of about 500 residential units and uh, about 40,000 square feet of commercial space. And what's the response been from from both that group, that, that, that body, and just the community at large that's now heard about it? The Planning Commission overall is quite supportive of the project. It fits within the vision of the hydraulic small area plan and what Albemarle County kind of envisions for the 29 corridor, uh, which uh, is a vision for a more walkable community with a lot more residential uses in these uh, shopping centers. Overall, they're excited about the opportunity to sort of take a a step in the direction of that plan. Giles, how does this impact some of the conversations around affordable housing in the city? 
I think that's a good question. I mean, there's um, and kind of continuance of our conversation from last week about the comprehensive plan. Um, you know, basically, this is an aggressive play to play by the rules and by the general principles of the plans for this part of town. Denser, more residential, more walkable, um, kind of capitalizes on the investment in Hillsdale Drive as an alternative transportation route and a new way of creating a more kind of um, citified instead of suburban environment in that part of town. So in general, it checks those boxes. Um, I think um, David Mitchell at Great Eastern Management is one of the developers with a very good handle on these things and on the cast of characters, and he's very good at managing these situations. Um, but where the rubber is going to hit the road is probably around affordable housing. Um, how, how, how many affordable units are you willing to put in? What does that do to the prospectus? How much give is the developer going to allow in that conversation? Um, and, you know, th these have big implications because it's really, I think the, the, the developers that are right now who are still being aggressive in these conversations are the most experienced ones with the largest sort of scale. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is pretty scared about how political the environment is and what that could do to their process as it moves through time financially. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is an example of a pretty aggressive, forward-looking developer who's taking the public bodies at their word. This is what you want. I'm going to give it to you. But then what's the give and take after that? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, gentlemen, you've got a new project, uh, Seavillepedia, which has been around for a while. I, I still reference it sometimes. I'm looking up somebody in town. But you're relaunching it uh, this week. Yep. Thank you for the chance to advertise this. Please, if you're interested in participating in the best little wiki in the nation, uh, go to Seavillepedia.org <laughs> and uh, add your knowledge to the mix. Um, because uh, I, I really think that um, what we're doing is trying to hand the wiki back to the community as an information resource. And we need moderators, we need participants, we need organizations, neighborhood associations, um, community groups to kind of embrace it and really add their knowledge and information to you know, this, this, this wiki community so people can really come up to speed if they move to town and they're new to town and they click on something like the Landmark Hotel or <laughs> McIntyre Park or Biscuit Run or sure. any number of the proper nouns in the community that people care about, including people mm -hmm. um, who have made really significant impacts in the community um, and whose stories aren't told. Watch out when you click on Giles Morris. Oh, man. Nathan's already uh, editing the Mo Moderating entry. that one, yeah. Uh, well, Giles Morris is the executive director of Charlottesville Tomorrow, Elliot Robinson, the news editor, and Josh Mandel, a reporter over there. Once again, thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Find out more and read the latest at charlottesvilletomorrow.org. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and on the TEJ FM network. That's T-E-E-J dot FM. WTJU and TEJ FM are both a service of the University of Virginia. Opinions expressed on the show are, of course, just that. They're opinions. They're not the positions of the University of Virginia, which I hope goes without saying, but you never know. Stick around. We've got more news and conversation coming right up. Well, as we do each week, we're talking with our friend and journalist, Peter Galaska. He's based in the Richmond area, and we are going to talk about some state politics. Peter, the Virginia General Assembly is in session this month, but uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. Right now, though, I want to talk about some bigger news that just came down from a federal court about legislative district maps in Virginia. This sounds really dry, but it's not. It's important. Tell me what's going on with this. Well, it's really important because, uh, as we will talk about shortly, um, 
you know, a lot of the, uh, you know, more progressive centrist views that the Democrats have been trying to push have been blocked by the um, Republican House of Delegates. But this new redistricting map that the courts have, uh, are recommending is really going to maybe change all that. Basically, what's happened is, if you recall, a uh, federal court found that uh, 11 districts in Virginia, mostly in, in Richmond and Hampton Roads, were unfairly packed with African-Americans. Uh, this is done by the Republican-led legislature in the last redistricting session. And so they, they, you know, after a bunch of messing around, uh, rather than have the General Assembly redistrict, it was chosen that the uh, a federal judge would do it or a federal system would do it. They've come out with uh, recommendations to redraw the lines of 26 districts, and that would impact um, a number of um, powerful Republicans. And that's significant because, in terms of next year, uh, December, uh, November's uh, you know, general assembly election. So this is back to a gerrymandering case, basically that the district yeah, maps exactly. were written. Yeah, they were written in such a way that the maps were made in such a way that that Republicans had a comfortable but not too large majority in in districts that they could win fairly easily, while packing a whole bunch of Democrats, including predominantly African Americans in some cases, mm-hmm. into some districts and then diluted, diluting their voting power. Which, which is significant is that Virginia, the Virginia Public Access Project, which is basically a large database that analyzes a lot of uh, you know, contributions and data uh, on politics in the state, did an analysis of the court's recommendations. And the people who could be affected, the Republicans who could be affected, are really pretty significant. This could affect the district of uh, Speaker of the House Kirk Cox in Colonial Heights, Chris Jones of Suffolk, Chris Stolle in Virginia Beach, and a number of others. And it's going to impact um, Republican-held districts more than democratically-held districts. And given the the blue wave that you saw as evidenced in the recent congressional uh, contest, um, you could see you know this would just add more impetus towards a uh, a more democratic uh, influence on the on the state politics in, in, the, in the coming year. And so when you say it could have an impact on these GOP uh, lawmakers right now, what you mean there is that the the seats. Uh, the the district maps as they're redrawn um, are actually then ones that voted for Barack Obama in 2012. But exactly, that was the basis, and that means that it will be easier for a Democratic candidate on the uh, state legislative level to make inroads um, than it was before, because the way that the, the you know as the lines were drawn before it you know made it easier for Republicans to get elected, and that's the way it's been for a number of years, and that's changing. I mean, there have been a number of analyses that Virginia had one of the most gerrymandered maps after the last redistricting. I mean, it was very well, it's common throughout the country. I mean, North Carolina, for example, our neighbor has the same problem. But this has been going on. And I mean, the Democrats do it, too. I mean, if they're in power, um, whoever's in charge then gets to have their weight felt. And what, what really should be done, as a lot of people, including the Washington Post, have recommended uh, in an editorial, is that instead of having the legislature redistrict, they should have an independent commission that's uh, uh, nonpartisan. All right. Well, speaking of the General Assembly, uh, we've got a session going on right now. Um, this seems like the week when a lot of sort of moderately progressive bills sponsored by Democrats met their death. Um, and it seems like a pretty clear reminder this week that a one-seat Republican majority in the House and in the Senate still is a majority. So uh, a few of these. One is the Equal Rights Amendment. There's a lot of energy around the ERA this right. year. It's been on the table off and on since the 1970s. Uh, what's going on? What happened? Well, what happened was this. This is, you know, I mean, you really look at it, um, given the chance that there's been no real you know, substantive majority change in either House, um, Republicans control it, and as has happened <coughs> repeatedly for at least the past five years, 
um, efforts to get Virginia to ratify the 1972 Equal Rights Amendment had been killed in committee in the House. We passed by the Senate, but then the House, uh, I think it's Privileges and Election Committee, which is controlled by the GOP, and they, they throttled it. What this means is this: had Virginia ratified the ERA, it would have been the law of the land because Virginia would be the 38th and final state needed to ratify it. And uh, but you know, and it's kind of interesting because uh, Ms. Ransom, who's a Republican, and she really led the charge against ERA, and it got into kind of some testy, testy arguments on Capitol Hill with Eileen Davis, who is a pro ERA activist and happens to be the mother of Abigail Spanberger. Uh, a Democrat who beat David Brad in the seventh uh, district in November, so it got kind of nasty. But this once again sets the stage up for if there is a Democratic sweep come November, then a year from now you might see something happen. Another one, a bill that would have raised Virginia's minimum wage substantially. There were several bills uh, about the minimum wage in Virginia. One that actually made it out of committee was a big surprise last week uh, to raise it to fifteen dollars yeah. an hour in a couple of years. Well, it was a bunch of um, you know kabuki theater, basically by Tommy Norman. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Senate. But but basically was this, the issue was this is that there was a proposal to raise Virginia's minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. And of course given the pro business, anti union, anti worker ethos in much of the state, that was like, no, we can't do that, absolutely not. And the arguments were, yeah, that might work for Northern Virginia where, you know, salaries are higher, but it would be a death knell in the rural areas and uh in other places because businesses just can't afford going from like seven twenty five to fifteen dollars an hour that quickly. So that's that's what's happened. I mean, once again, you know, this has happened before, it's happened again. There was one that surprised me a little bit um, because I thought it might have had a chance. It was one that would have ended criminal arrests for disorderly conduct of kids, school kids, who are being disruptive. Um, That's one that that doesn't have sort of like obvious partisan lines except that, you know, Democrats have have often argued against the school-to-prison pipeline, that often kids will get into trouble young, get sent to the the law enforcement system, justice system young, and then that leads – to future things. Well, I think the undercurrent of that is basically if you look at some of the um, more suburban districts where you have, say, like in Henrico County around Richmond, if you go to the west part of Henrico, which is very affluent, it's mostly white, and you go to the eastern part of Henrico, it, there's more African American students. Well, African American students are disproportionately disciplined for, you know, supposedly disruptive conduct in the class. And a lot of um, conservative commentators leap on this, and they say, this is the issue. You know, these kids are disrupting other students, keep preventing them from learning. And, um, you know, the Democrats are saying, no, wait a minute. I mean, you're setting them up to be criminals by, you know, you're channeling them in that path. Let's not do that. And the Republicans come back, and they say pretty much that, no, this is a social, socially important issue, and we've got to be tough and enforce discipline. And that's when again, once again, manifested itself in the legislative action. Yeah, and so that one uh, also then got dropped this year. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn uh, in our last uh, minute or two here to uh, a final story, shifting over to Virginia's economy, higher ed. You know, we just saw Amazon announce it HQ2, which is going to be partly based up in uh, Crystal City, mm-hmm. northern Virginia. Um, sort of related, but very much on its own. UVA, University of Virginia, right here in Charlottesville, uh, has mm-hmm. announced a new school of data science and is backed by a gigantic philanthropic gift. Take yeah. me through this story. Yeah, no, basically it's related, of course, to Amazon and the fact that Northern Virginia won half of the uh, head, second headquarters with uh, New York winning the other half. And um, curiously, what, what uh, all these uh, 
places around the country were throwing money and goodies and incentives at Amazon. And what Virginia did, which really interesting, uh, was even though Maryland offered them $7 billion, or some ridiculous sum, Virginia really put in, like, if you build in Northern Virginia, we're going to expand Virginia Tech and George Mason into producing data-savvy graduates. And then UVA followed on, uh, interestingly enough, with a grant uh, of $120 million from a quantitative, the Quantitative Foundation, which is a big investment fund, in, in the Charlottesville area. And then UVA is kicking in some money too, which will you know, hire more faculty, create a PhD in data science with the idea of helping funnel well-trained people to you know, IT-centric computer-interested jobs, which are, you know, everyone says it has been the future for years. And it's interesting that labor workforce creation trumps incentives and tax breaks. That seems to be the message. Sure. And so we've talked a number of times about Virginia kind of casting about trying to really grow the next sector of the economy, you know, especially as federal spending becomes more tenuous. Um, Yeah, it's important because you've got Amazon locating, you've got Facebook locating in the state, Micron and a bunch of people. Northern Virginia is a major, major Internet center. And it's a way to keep, you know, the state from being continually dependent upon federal spending and defense spending. Plus, I mean, in many ways, Virginia's been behind in research compared to certainly the Bay Area of California and even the research triangle in North Carolina. So this will help the state for the future. Peter Galaska is a journalist based in Richmond. You're listening to Soundboard here on WTJU 91.1 FM and the Tej FM network, teej.fm. WTJU is supported by the Southern Environmental Law Center, celebrating 30 years of protecting the South's environment and the people who depend on it for health and well-being. Power of the Law, Southern Environmental Law Center. Well, the University of Virginia is about 200 years old as of this week. Its charter is now celebrating its bicentennial on Friday, January 25th. So to mark this occasion, uh, WTJU has collected a whole bunch of stories with university alums, students, community members, and others. Uh, Here to talk with us about this particular project is Emily Richardson-Lorente. She's the head producer. Emily, hey. Hey. Why mark the university's bicentennial in this way? Oh, I think it's the perfect way. I mean, I'm... Personally, I'm an audio producer, so I'm biased, and I love interviewing people. And I think, uh, you know, every time I read an article in the Daily Progress or hear about somebody passing away who was some great champion of the university or uh, was, uh, you know, the first uh, person to graduate in some category, and, and I think nobody <laughs> nobody got them on tape <laughs> before they died, that's such a shame. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, the university has such history, such a tremendous history, from Jefferson on up, that I think we have a continuing and evolving opportunity to capture that history on tape. And we, we there have been other oral history projects um, that are largely in print. Um, there are some audio files that are hard to access and harder to play. But I think this was a great opportunity to use the resources with WTJU and with the producers and volunteer students to actually capture people's real voices. And um, I don't know. I think it's beautiful. Let's uh, let's play one of these pieces here. Uh, uh, um, uh, which one do you want to hear first, Emily? Um, how about the uh, John Merchant interview? He was the first African American graduate at UVA's, UVA's law school, 
and he was not, uh, I have to say the, the thing about this was he was one of the first people who I spoke to who wasn't relentlessly positive about the university, and that was kind of exciting. <laughs> Just to get a different kind of perspective. Yeah. Uh, here's uh, John Merchant. It's a bitch to be alone. This is the Bicentennial Oral History Project from WTJU Charlottesville. Well, my name is John Merchant. I just turned 85. Back in 1958, John Merchant was the first African-American to graduate from the UVA Law School. Quite honestly, being the first wasn't that big a deal to me. I was wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. You were the only African-American student in the law school. I was the only one here for the entire three years. One of the first things I saw out of one of the dormitories was the Confederate flag. I'm saying, oh, damn, what the hell am I doing here? And then I was given a room. I'm waiting for my roommate. Never got a roommate. Never. Nobody to talk to. I mean, nobody to vent to. Nobody to, let's go to dinner. You know, it was tough. To hear more, visit uvastories.com. That's good. I I also have to admit I I love that he curses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean you know <laughs> you know d- doing interviews that uh, you quite often get people trying to sort of perform. They wanna they wanna be on their best behavior and they use all the right words. But with these oral histories, um, the real bright spots were where people were just completely honest, and you could tell. What do you hope this uh, this project tells about the university to, to today's generation or even future? That's a good question. I I hope that it is altogether is an honest portrayal of the university. Um, that it's it's not a marketing campaign. Um, it's not meant to show the university in in simply a positive light. Um, a lot of the people we interviewed talked about the university in glowing terms, and they love their experience here. But nobody's experience was uh, was good all around, and everybody has had a complicated relationship with, you know, whether it's college or job or whatever brought them here to UVA. Uh, and so I, I hope as a as a whole, the project, if anybody sat down and listened to just the one-minute pieces that we edited from these hour-long interviews, they would get a real sense that the university has a huge, broad sweep, that it attracts all sorts of people, and uh, that it's evolving, that the university has gotten so... Uh, so much better and uh, more open over the decades, you know, from the addition of women in, the, in 1970 on through um, LGBTQ uh, resource, resources and, um, and the, uh, you know, adding more minorities and uh, kids from other countries. The UVA has really uh, evolved from the vision, I think, that Jefferson had for it. And I think this, you know, in some tiny way, this oral history project shows that. Speaking of that, you want to listen to Beth Meyer next? Maybe another example? Yeah. It was a bit of a shock when we got here to see that not everybody was so excited about us being here. This is the Bicentennial Oral History Project from WTJU Charlottesville. In 74, I had actually um, entered in the architecture program. Uh, There were kind of two university cultures overlapping, like the all-male and the co-educational so many things have changed. A lot of upper-class guys roamed the dorms. I mean, doors were not locked back then. So they'd come into the halls and the suites, you know, basically just checking out, like, the new crop of girls, right? It was very weird. And I remember one of them who was in the architecture school uh, looking at me and saying, oh, you seem like too much fun 
chances are you won't be in the architecture school after this semester. I'm Beth Meyer. I'm the Merrill D. Peterson Professor in Landscape Architecture at the School of Architecture. For more, visit uvastories.com. Well, obviously, she uh, <laughs> stayed in the architecture school after that. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Emily, this is a, a fantastic project. Um, uh, I enjoy hearing these one-minute pieces. Uh, you and I have actually been working together on it, so it's a little bit of a cheat in a way because <laughs> we're sort of inward-looking here. <laughs> but but a big old happy birthday to the University of Virginia turning 200. I mean, you know, there's not very many institutions that get to say that. And uh, and it's exciting, and it's cool to mark it with this, uh, with this piece, uh, with these series of pieces. We've got, what, 120, 110 pieces total that will be airing? It's going to be closer to 200 by the time we're... Uploaded. There you go. So we'll have uh, close to 200 pieces for the 200th anniversary of the University of Virginia. Uh, those are going to air, well, they're, they're airing now on WTJU 91.1 FM, and they're going to keep airing once per show all the way through uh, the end of March, if not further on than that. So uh, listen to WTJU, hear all the pieces, or go online to uvastories.org. They're all posted there. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, Nathan. Emily Richardson-Lorente is the lead producer of the Bicentennial Oral Histories Project at WTJU. Well, that does it for this week's edition of Soundboard, your source for news, culture, and community issues in Central Virginia. My name's Nathan Moore. Our theme song is Kyoja Beat by Morwen Alasco and Jay Punt. This is Soundboard. Catch us at WTJU.net or on our podcast home at TEEJFM. That's T-E-E-J dot F-M. Have a great week. Thank you.